the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Most will remember the international disaster that happened around about this time 15 years ago. Uh, in 2004, a magnitude 9 earthquake uh, in the Indian Ocean triggered a tsunami which crashed into the coasts of Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Myanmar, India and Sri Lanka and especially affected the city of Banda Aceh in Indonesia. Rob and Paul Falcon were on the ground floor of their hotel room when water began rushing in. They were 15 and 17 at the time. As they scrambled up onto the roof, their parents tried to save their younger siblings, Matty and Rosie, but all four perished along with a staggering 230,000 other people. Rob and Paul hitchhiked 280 kilometres to the nearest functioning airport and flew back to the UK to be reunited with the remaining members of their family. You probably remember how this event dominated the news following Christmas Day 15 years ago. Today's Gospel gives the account of another human tragedy that is associated with the very first Christmas. The Massacre of the Innocents, as it was called, was the mastermind of paranoid King Herod, who suddenly realised that the Magi weren't coming back. He made a quick calculation about how old the baby born to be king would be, based on when the star appeared, and dispatched a death squad to Bethlehem to murder all the male babies under two. So we have a paradox on the first Sunday following Christmas. Uh, gone are the sentimental scenes of the Holy Family with magi, shepherds and animals meekly standing by. The echoes of peace on earth and goodwill to all have died away. Uh, the peace and goodwill have been replaced by terror and haste. Mary, Joseph and Jesus find themselves caught up in a tidal wave of evil and just managed to escape to Egypt. So even within this Christmas season, we hear about the struggles that one family went through. Overnight, the Holy Family had become refugees fleeing persecution. You see, Jesus came into a world of sin, as the Christmas carol says. Jesus came into the real world. And God incarnate became a real person who experienced the reality of human life with all its dangers and griefs and troubles. I was watching a debate between an atheist and Christian philosopher William Lane Craig the other night, and the main argument that the atheist used against theism was the pervasive presence of evil in the world. And he reasoned that because of the presence of evil, there could just as well be an evil god out there who delighted in inflicting pain and suffering on humankind, albeit with a few uh, examples of goodness thrown in, as opposed to the existence of a good God who allowed the existence of some evil. Now, I would be the first to concede that the problem of evil and suffering is a very real challenge to Christianity. Most have been, have been touched by suffering in some way or other, either our own or someone dear to us. Um, sometimes the suffering has a definite cause, that is attributable to human behaviour. But most often, suffering seems completely arbitrary and totally unfair. Accidents, 
natural disasters like tsunamis, or ill health. So how can a God who is purported to be good, loving, and all-powerful allow this state of affairs? It's a question that is very often personal and very troubling, especially to a person of faith. However, Christian thinkers down through the ages have probed this question at great length and have offered a variety of responses. Although at a pastoral level, it is often not particularly helpful to offer reasons to those who are in the midst of personal suffering, unless, of course, they initiate the conversation themselves. So the first response is what has become known as the free will defence. And it goes something like this. The kind of world that God chose to create involved creatures having the capacity to make real moral choices. And free will is what separates us from animals and makes us uniquely human. So in other words, the world in which we live, which allows us to have free moral choice, also has the capacity for evil. The argument concludes by saying that a world capable of both good and evil must ultimately have been a more valuable kind of world than a world of puppets where God simply pulled the strings. So we live in a world where there is a possibility of a Herod or a Hitler, but there is also a possibility of a St. Francis or a Mother Teresa, or indeed you and I, making free moral choices to do good, to help those in need, and to practice altruism. The other common response to the problem of to the problem of evil is that God is able to use evil and suffering. He doesn't agree with it. He doesn't like it. But given that it's there, he can use it to bring about a greater good. But we may have to wait until the next life to actually experience this greater good. This fits with many biblical passages, especially, for example, Romans 8 verse 28, which says, that God works all things together for good. And there are many examples we can think of in Scripture. For example, in Genesis, Joseph, who followed and loved God, was sold into slavery by his brothers, a great evil. After he was wrongly imprisoned for many years, another great evil, he was finally released and elevated to a position second only to Pharaoh. While in this position, he made it possible for the people of Egypt and his own father and brothers to live through a famine which lasted seven years. His suffering was used by God to bring about good. But the final argument, I think, is most persuasive of all. We've talked about free will. We've talked about the ability of God to use evil and suffering. But there's a third and I think most persuasive response. And that is, at a certain point in history, God himself entered into his creation, taking the form of a human being. He was fully human, but retained his full divin divinity. As a human being, Jesus suffered. He lived, he suffered, and died on a Roman cross. So this was God incarnate, going all the way out to the most extreme point of suffering and God-forsakenness in order 
to gather up all his lost children in whatever state of oppression, of pain, of disability, of distress. The cross isn't a neat philosophical argument trying to let God off the hook or defend God's actions. The cross isn't the solution to the intellectual problem of pain and suffering. The cross is God himself entering fully into the human condition, not taking a shortcut as the evil one tried to tempt him to do on more than one occasion, but following through, taking upon himself the suffering and evil of the world and transforming it through the resurrection. So the massacre of the innocents and the flight into Egypt took place directly after the birth of Christ. As N.T. Wright said, Jesus the Messiah was born into a time of trouble, tension, violence and fear. Banish all thoughts of peaceful Christmas scenes. Before the Prince of Peace had learned to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. But there's a wider picture here. Throughout the passage, Matthew quotes from the Old Testament prophets, especially Hosea and Jeremiah, showing that all this was actually part of God's purpose in human history. This is how God set about liberating his people and bringing justice to the whole world. To quote right again, no point in arriving in comfort when the world is in misery, no point having an easy life when the world suffers violence and injustice. If Jesus is to be Emmanuel, God with us, he must be with us where the pain is. And so this is the most important Christian response to the suffering in the world. God is with us. You know, as a young man, C.S. Lewis served in the trenches of World War I. This was several years before his conversion to Christianity. And he wrote a series of poems entitled Spirits in Bondage. And God is mentioned quite a lot, quite, in quite a disparaging way, actually, as he describes the tremendous suffering that Lewis witnessed in the trenches. He himself was wounded in 1918. And here's a short quote from his poetry before he became a Christian. Come then and curse the Lord. Over the earth gross darkness falls and evil was our birth and our few happy days of little worth. Even if it be not all a dream in vain, the ancient hope that still will rise again of a just God that cares for earthly pain. Yet far away beyond our laboring night, he wanders in the depths of endless light, singing alone his musics of delight. So at that point in Lewis's life, in the midst of the darkness, which we cannot imagine, the darkness and suffering of the war, he thought that God was remote, far away, and not interested in the earthly pain of people. And at that stage of his life, Lewis cursed God. Now, this was published in 1919. But in 1931, 12 years later, 
Lewis converted to Christianity, and his views about suffering changed completely, although they did evolve over time. When his wife, Joy Davidman, was dying of cancer, he tended not to rehearse the more philosophical responses to the problem of pain and suffering. He found himself wanting, instead, to suffer on behalf of his wife. He said in his book, A Grief Observed, and I quote, If only I could bear it, or the worst of it, or any of it, instead of her. Lewis came to realise that this is exactly what God had done for us. Christ suffered on behalf of us so that we might be spared the pain of ultimate separation. And in some way, which is a mystery to us, somehow build a much more glorious future for all of humankind, each of us individually and together. I have not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him, the scripture also says. Immediately following Jesus' birth, he was thrust into a world of tyrants, of hatred, of murder, anxiety, and flight. God came into a hostile world, which was seeking to end his life before it began. But this was the very reason he came. To banish evil, heal our brokenness, and reconcile us to God. Jesus is God with us in all our sufferings and pains. Isn't that a comforting or indeed an inspiring belief? I won't call it a thought. It's much more than a thought. It's our sincere hope and the very reason we continue to gather and believe in our gracious God. Amen. Mandy, could you come forward and lead us in prayer? Thank you.